Welcome to The Full English, the podcast that explores Englishness through the lens of food. I've got a really brilliant interview in this episode with the food writer Sejal Sukadwala, author of The Philosophy of Curry. In this interview, we cover why the term curry is controversial, spices, colonialism and empire, the history of Indian food in England and some culinary fashions here and in India, and we touch on our ideas on authenticity as well. As always, if you like the show, please share it. We're growing our audience with every episode, and that's because you're out there sending on your WhatsApp groups and posting on your socials. So please keep that up. And if you want to help make this show, please donate £3 a month over on patreon.com forward slash full English. And one quick thing. I want to give a shout out for a short course that's running at Birkbeck University in London. The course is called Food, Politics and the City, led in part by Jonathan Edwards, who's appeared previously on this podcast. Jonathan and his colleagues aren't paying me to say this. I just think it's going to be a really brilliant short course on food. So check that out. I'll post a link to it in the description for the show, along with some articles by my brilliant guest, Sejal Sukadwala. I'm Lewis Bassett. Sound design and mixing is, as always, from Forest DLG. Um, Sejal, thank you so much for uh, coming on the full English, and and thanks for the sandwich masala. Um, I'm going to post the, a picture of that on on Instagram. Um, yeah, I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll update you. Uh, so yeah, let's get right into it. So the philosophy of curry came out almost exactly a year ago. Um, I'd like to start by asking you, why did you write the book? What what prompted you to write it? Well, the British Library asked me. I didn't have curry history on my radar as something I wanted to write about. But they were looking for, I think, an Indian food writer to write about uh, um, the philosophy of curry, which is part of... Um, a series of books on single subject books on different topics like um, there's a philosophy of tea for instance mm. uh, philosophy of coffee wine beer gin and so on and I think they were looking for um, an Indian food writer with uh, an interest in food history at first I wasn't too sure because you know I didn't really want to be stereotyped as an Indian food writer who writes about curry mm-hmm. um, it's also a controversial topic and um, I wasn't sure whether I would be able to get fit everything in into you know the the word length because it's quite it's quite uh, a short book, mm. but because it's British Library and the you know the title is really cool. Um, and when I started just doing preliminary research, I, I discovered that you know the topic has been written about by uh, British white British and white um, American food historians, but hardly any Indian person has written about curry. Mm-hmm. So I thought it would be good for me to write. Uh, about this topic from an Indian angle. It's a really great little book, and I really appreciate that it's that it's not too long. Um, it's super super <laughs> enjoyable to read. Um, so you. yeah, I'm really glad they asked you to write it. Um, let's start where you start, which is that you talk a little bit about the idea that the term curry is sometimes seen as problematic, and even at one point in I guess the world of internet discourse, some people called for it to be cancelled. Mm. Um, why is it the term curry seen as problematic? And can you explain that? And also, can you explain, you know, what your thoughts are on that? Yeah, um, 
I mean, a lot of Indian people didn't didn't grow up with, with the use uh, of the word curry. Mm-hmm. Many people in India don't use the word. They they call the dishes by individual names mm-hmm. because there are so many different types of curries. Um, or the uh, curry is a category a category of dishes, and uh, there are so many different dishes which uh, a white British person would call call it curry, but in India it would be called by a different name. Like for instance, just to give an example, here you'd call something a potato curry, but in India, if you were born in Gujarat, it would be uh, batakanushak, uh, which would be just a, a, like a dry potato curry. Mm. That if if it was potato curry with gravy, then th- they would call it rasavaru batakanushak. Um, then it was... Um, if you if you were born in Punjab, you'd call it alu sabzi. Mm-hmm. Um, then in Kashmir, if you did uh, if you made uh, damalu with ba- baby potatoes, uh, Kashmiri style, it would be in a in a yogurt and spice gravy, and it would, it would just be called damalu and not potato curry. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Punjabi version of damalu is made in tomato onion gravy. So you know there are all these different variations of just some, one ingredient, which is potatoes. In, in South India, for instance, it would be potato masala and then, you know, it would be like coarsely mashed potatoes with uh, onions. So there are all these different techniques and, you know, they all have different textures and different tastes and different, you know, cooking cooking styles. Um, and yet a British person would just call it curry, whereas mm-hmm. in, in India they would all be called, you know, by different names. So by reducing Indian cuisine to just the term curry, it's just doing it disservice. You know, you're not getting the the nuances, the complexities mm. of um, really sort of hugely um, complicated cuisine where, you know, dishes are kind of shaped by your caste, your subcaste, your parents' kind of, I don't know, religious beliefs, um, Ayurveda, whether, I mean, seasons as well, you know, it's they're very hyper-seasonal and hyper-local Often, I mean, there's like one pastry and there are like 22 versions of it, you know, all over India and different names in different Indian languages. So you get things like that. And, you know, so there's so much to, so much more to Indian food than curries, basically. Mm. And that's what, you know, people don't want the cuisine to be reduced to just one single term. But on the other hand, I think, you know, lots of cuisines have the same problem. I mean, you know, people reduce Italian food to pizza and pasta. Mm-hmm. Chinese cuisine is reduced, you know, it's Chinese cuisine is really complex and it's highly regional and um, it's reduced to dim sum and stir fries. Yeah. So I don't think we should get too precious about curry. Um, and I think in Indian people in India don't, they don't get so precious about the, about the term. But I think diaspora Indians do because they've stayed away from um, home for many years. Some Indian people have not visited India, you know, and so I think some some people are more sort of concerned about some of these um, terms like curry and cultural appropriation and uh, decolonizing cuisine and so on, which Indians in India are not always concerned about because they've got other, you know, other issues to deal with, like the caste system is problematic and, you know, the extreme right, right-wing government mm-hmm. and what they're doing to food, trying to uh, wipe out the the Muslim influence on Indian food and so on. You know, I think these things are really problematic to Indian people writing about food in India. They're not really that worried about things like, should we use the term curry? Mm. <laughs> um, the other, I mean, there are other reasons as well, like lots of Indian people were bullied when they were at school um, for smelling of curry, which is, you know, just a racist mm. way of harassing someone. And they became really conscious of the smell and even now I think lots of Indian people are really they, they get very self-conscious about cooking Indian food um, in case the neighbours complain of, of the smell 
or if they're in an apartment block, especially in a European city, they might be told not to cook curry in, in case, you know, the smell is offensive to, to, to the neighbours. Right. So it's, it's to do with like persistent racism, like from childhood to, you know, even, even when, you, when you're grown up. So that's one, that's another reason. And um, that's another thing that um, curry is strongly associated with colonialism. Mm-hmm. So that's really problematic to, you know, for a lot of people. And I, um, I mean, I sympathize with that because I think, yeah, it's true. But the, then on the other hand, you know, cuisines evolve and change and they change for lots of different reasons. Sometimes they change because of travel, you know, uh, because other uh, communities have moved into your country or you, you've traveled abroad and you've picked up different influences. Mm. Um, so it's to do with trade, travel um, and just, you know, the way that cuisines evolve. I mean, nothing, nothing stays static so and also the other thing is of course you know curry has traveled the world and it's been embraced by countries like japan and mauritius and mm. so on where it's hugely popular in trinidad and so on it's really really popular in countries abroad just because you know indians uh, some indians don't approve of it you can't make other people erase those dishes mm. or the term from their cuisines mm. So obviously it doesn't take you too long in the book to come on to the history of colonialism and empire. And you do, I think, a really good job in not too many words of explaining both how the spice trade fueled empire and also you look at how um, empire can be seen kind of through the evolution of curry. Um, I wonder, could you just give me some kind of summary or some kind of taste of that uh, narrative from the book? I mean, I think, I mean, well, you know, colonialism starts with the spice trade. So um, India was really wealthy until up until 15th century, until the Portuguese came looking for spices. And it made its money from selling spices to Europe and to Central Asia and Southeast Asia and, and rest of Asia and uh, Arabic, uh, Arab countries as well. And it was really, it was an extremely wealthy country. And then um, the Portuguese, Portuguese came along at the end of uh, 15th century. And they came back at, uh, in the early 16th century as well. And they started setting up um, trading posts in, well, in Western India. And a few decades later, the British came as well. And they established presidency towns in Madras and in Bombay and Calcutta, bit by bit. And they started reshaping India, if you like, into image of England. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there were churches and cemeteries and um, plazas and town squares and schools and army barracks and all kinds of things. Um, and, I mean, they initially came looking for spices as well. And then there were uh, the, the early, the first lot of uh, colonials were East India Company men. Um, and they married local women and they tried to blend in. You know, they called mm. themselves Anglo-Indian, uh, which in those days it meant uh, the British in India. It was a term applied to British in India, but now it means anyone of um, mixed Indian and European heritage. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a legal definition by the Indian government. Mm-hmm. And um, they, they didn't think around with the cuisine much at the beginning. You know, they ate what Indians ate. Um, but then they started sort of, um, they took the template of curry and they simplified the recipes so that they could cook them themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, some of the curries, some of the traditional Indian curries, they found too pungent and too hot. So they toned down the flavors, 
toned down the spices, they used more cream and more coconut, and they randomly started mixing ingredients from different parts of India. They didn't really, they didn't really understand local cuisines and mm. regional differences. So if they like, if some, someone say, you know, British person liked um, a curry in Madras, if they traveled to Punjab and they didn't get the same curry, they would kind of, they would mix, you know, Punjabi curry with like South Indian elements, mm-hmm. um, like curry leaves and uh, <laughs> um, coconut and, and just concoct their own own sort of curry. Mm-hmm. So they, they started anglicizing and simplifying Indian recipes to suit their tastes. Um, and um, uh, in, in India, some you know th- there would be some relishes eaten with rice and curry. But uh, what the British did was they gave this these garnishes and accompaniments a huge amount of importance. So you know chutneys became really like essential. Mm. And then there would be all these things like you know like sliced bananas and grated coconut and peanuts and uh, curry puffs, which were like uh, pasties with uh, stuffing. So, you know, all these garnishes and accompaniments became uh, like an important part of a curry meal. Whereas, you know, t- to an Indian person, I think a rice and dal or rice and curry or flatbread and curry is is fine. You know, that's yeah. enough. And the garnishes are like a bonus. They're not, they're not, I mean, yeah, I mean, they're eaten, they're widely eaten and they're important. But if you just have a meal with two or three items, that's enough. Mm. Whereas a British person, even now, you know, you find like people um, making Indian food at home and they feel like they have to have uh, poppadums, what they call poppadums, uh, are called papads, papads and mango chutney and so on, on the side, because otherwise it's not an Indian meal. Right. But not every meal has to be like that. Mm. Uh, so they started adapting Indian dishes and they lost lost that sense of regionality. And um, the second wave of colonials came when after Victoria became Empress of India. So they were young public school educated boys and they had this, you know, pretty and naive young wives. And they all these mame sahibs and, you know, sahibs and mame sahibs came along and they were really snooty and they were very disparaging towards Indian people. And by this time, there were, there were all these uh, racial theories in uh, 19th century Britain that the British were superior, mm-hmm. you know, they were superior to, uh, like, other races. So there was, there was an element of racism. I mean, the, you know, the first lot of colonials were, I mean, they, they were in awe of India. They found it really exotic. Um, India was really wealthy. They wanted to copy some of the, you know, some of the things that Indians did. Uh, whereas the second lot were, like, they wanted to educate uh, what they thought were, you know, people in a backward country. So they had a very different attitude. And that meant that the second lot refused to eat the food and yeah. asked, asked for it to be more anglicised. Yeah, yeah, that's right. They they didn't want to eat because by this time uh, there was huge French influence on, on food in Britain. Mm. So they really looked down on curry. And by this time, spices had become less popular because they'd become ubiquitous and they'd lost their value really you know and the kind of you know the the novelty value and also in terms of uh expense you know they were, they were not expensive anymore so they weren't desirable anymore they were just like they were seen as vulgar if anything you know because everyone was eating food with spices so actually it became fashionable to eat food without spices uh, and right. spices were reserved for desserts and puddings and cakes occasionally um but it was just seen as vulgar. And so, so these, the, you know, these new sahibs and mame sahibs, they just looked down on Indian food and they didn't want anything to do with it. And um, they started importing like canned food and um, tried to eat 
what they thought the British um, back, you know, in Britain were eating. Mm. But by that time, you know, in, in Britain, people were eating Indian food because it had come back in fashion. I mean, Britain has had roller coaster, uh, roller coaster relationship with Indian food. So it's gone in and out of fashion and at different periods for different reasons. So, um, yeah, and I mean, in, in Britain, uh, Indian food was being promoted because India was being promoted as, a, as this, you know, sort of exotic country where Queen Victoria was all powerful. Um, she was an empress uh, of this, you know, wonderful country with amazing silk fabrics and textiles and ornaments and jewellery and, you know, this amazing food. And um, so, you know, it was like a distraction by Prime Minister Disraeli uh, to distract the working classes from poverty um, in, in Britain. And it worked because, you know, everyone started being really proud of the empire mm. and taking an interest in Indian food and in all, all things Indian, you know, they became really fashionable. And so Indian food became very, uh, very fashionable at the same time as, you know, sahibs and mem sahibs in India who, who were newly arrived, they rejected the food. So it's, it's all kind of, it's all a bit funny. Mm. Before we come on to the development of Indian food um, as it existed in England and exists today, I'm interested about that legacy in India itself, like about that, I mean, to call it an exchange would kind of seem to remove the power inequalities, but that kind of exchange between the British colonizers and the, the local Indian population, what legacies can you see today in terms of food? You've, you've given me this sandwich masala, so I guess yeah. that's a good example, but I mean, yeah. what, what else is there? Yeah, well, I mean, firstly, you know, Indian food didn't have any um, potatoes, tomatoes or chilies mm. or bread. So these were introduced by the colonials. Um, the the chilies were introduced by possibly the Portuguese and they arrived from Lisbon in Goa um, around 17th century. And there's no record of um, uh, chilies in India before then. Um, but they, they arrived in India from Western India. I mean, there's also, I mean, I have other theories about how they arrived in Northeast India. And I think they came from China, uh, which is a little known story. The next thing that was introduced was potatoes. And that was in the early 18th century. And that was by either the British or the Dutch. And tomatoes came to India in uh, late 18th century. And they were initially grown for for the British um, and they came from Mexico and Peru, um, but they were initially just for the use of the British. But Bengalis um, loved them, you know, and they started using them as souring agent, agents in the curries. So Bengalis embraced tomatoes. They also they were also the first to embrace potatoes mm -hmm. when the rest of India was really suspicious of potatoes. And chilies were initially just embraced by South Indians because their food was already hot with uh, black pepper and uh, long pepper. So chilies were instantly popular with South Indians, but it took a long time for other Indians to embrace chilies. Mm. So yeah, I think these three are really important because you can't imagine, I mean, a lot of people can't imagine Indian food without chilies, but they haven't always been there. Mm. And bread as well, which is widely eaten today, um, it was first in introduced by the British, uh, sorry, by the Portuguese in, in Goa who set up bakeries and then sandwiches, sorry, sandwiches were introduced by the British in gentlemen's clubs, which were set up in 17th century. And cheese, you know, cheese uh, was introduced possibly... Uh, there's one theory which says that it was introduced by the Portuguese in Bengal because before that, uh, curdling of milk wasn't allowed because milk was revered mm. as a pro you know as a product of 
of a cow and cows are weird. So breaking milk with uh, something acidic was disapproved of. Uh, that's controversial. Some There are some Indian food historians who argue that actually, you know, uh, milk curds are mentioned in the old scriptures. And so it's not, you know, it's not always been a taboo. Mm. But anyway, I mean, other other types of cheeses like uh, processed cheese and cheddar cheese, you know, that, that came with the, with the British. And also vegetables like um, there's a ubiquitous mixed vegetable which we would find in frozen sections, you know, in, in every British supermarket, which is basically uh, cauliflower, carrots, green beans, beans and peas. Yeah. Uh, these are used in so-called, you know, Mughlai pilaus and Mughlai curries and South Indian mixed vegetable curries and, you know, basically all types of different mix, mixed vegetable curries. And you could question, you know, why why this particular mix of vegetables? Because, um, I mean, it's the most popular mix of vegetables used in India, whereas if you used indigenous vegetables, then there would have to be things like, you know, yams, uh, sweet potatoes, okra, mm. uh, squashes and gourds and uh, aubergines. Uh, you wouldn't use these vegetables because they were planted by the British because Indian vegetables weren't to their taste. So I think, th you know, these vegetables have left a legacy because they're now widely used. Mm. Yeah, I think, you know, without all these influences, you know, brought from outside, I think it would, Indian food would be, it would be very different. And I, I don't, I know some people, you know, argue about how cuisines should be decolonized, but I don't see the point of doing that unless you're going to remove uh, ingredients which came, which were which weren't there before the colonials in, introduced them, mm. because then you're just making cuisine less delicious just to make a political point, yeah. and I don't see the point of doing that. No, I absolutely agree, and this also takes us on to the question of authenticity. But I'm going to stick a pin in that because we'll come to that at the end. Um, so yeah, I mean that's super interesting about that um, exchange and how Indian food evolved through that encounter with the colonizers. Let's look at it from the other side now in terms of how Indian food appeared in Britain. Um, I think you mentioned some of the first, I think you call them pop-ups, some of the first Indian yeah. restaurants to appear in, in, in London. Can you say a bit more about those when they first started to pop up and then how they started to evolve? Basically, how did Indian food like take root in the UK? Yeah. Um, well, before the pop-ups, um, there was curry being sold in coffee, coffee houses mm. in central London. And these coffee houses were owned by um, white British gentlemen, and they were like gentlemen's clubs uh, with mostly, well, actually, probably entirely male customers. And there's, a, I think, the first record of curry being sold is 1773, uh, but it's likely it was sold before that because um, records usually begin after something, you know, something starts. Mm. So. Um, I'm sure, you know, curry was sold in, I would say, mid-18th century in, in England. Uh, then the the, uh, the first Indian restaurant to open was in 1810, and it was called Hindustani Curry House. Mm. And it was set up by a guy called Sheikh Deen Mohammed, and he was born in India. He was an entrepreneur. And it only lasted for a year because the, the people who were regular customers, I mean, it was aimed at the returning British. Which, they were called right. Nabobs or Nawabs in India. And these were like retired 
East India Company men and they'd lived this life of luxury in India and they'd enjoyed curry and enjoyed cooking curry and they'd obtained some recipes from their servants in India and they'd come to Britain. Um, and they like, you know, they, they like going to coffee houses and there were quite, quite a few coffee houses by now who were serving curries, but they didn't have all Indian menus and they weren't run by or owned by any Indians. So the first all Indian restaurant with an entirely Indian menu owned by an Indian person was Hindustani Coffee House. Um, it's a shame it didn't last for long. And then in the early 20th century, I was in 1920s, there were empire exhibitions which started happening around London and around England. And they gave this kind of Disney-fied view of India. You know, there would be like snake charmers and elephants and, you know, Indian men dressed as Maharajas. And there would be like um, a mock Taj Mahal and, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. And they sold um, Indian food in what we would now call pop-ups. You know, they were just like temporary restaurants. And they sold Indian food made by Indian chefs. So these were the, you know, the the, the very first, uh, like, curry houses. And one was actually called Curry House. So I don't know whether we get the, the name Curry House from that or what. <laughs> um, there was another one called Ceylon um, Tea House. Right. So these were, you know, there were all these different pop-ups who sold, which sold Indian food, and they were really popular, and they, the food went down really well with, 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 uh, with the British. And then after that, one of the first, I mean, not the first, but one of the first Indian restaurants which is still surviving today is Viriswami. There were some other Indian restaurants before Viriswami, but this is, you know, the the oldest Indian, oldest surviving Indian restaurant, so it's really significant. But yeah, how curry came to Britain was when the the British were running uh, steamships in uh, between Calcutta and Assam Tea Gardens, and they employed cheap labour, which was you know Bengali seamen who were not very educated, but they were they were plentiful and they were really hardworking. They were from a region called Silet in what what is now Bangladesh, but in those days it would have been Bengal, and they wanted to escape poverty and take a chance in coming to Britain to see, you know, if they could improve their improve their livelihoods. Some of them jumped ship in either uh, London or Southampton, and some of them um, disembarked in Singapore and New York and settled, you know, settled in those countries. And the ones in London, first of all, you know, they came to East London and uh, around East End, uh, Brick Lane, Shadwell High Street, uh, Victoria Dock, and they started setting up cafes to, I mean, basically the initial cafes were just to provide food for Bengali seamen. Mm -hmm. So they were just for the local communities. They were not for uh, white British customers and they just provided rice and curry. So these were the earliest, uh, if you like, Bangladeshi restaurants. And then they started, these restaurants started um, opening in central London and in other other parts of London as well, in East London, in South Hall, and so on. And um, there were few who, which, which were set up by students from North India in Soho. Then after World War II, uh, the seamen who, who were working in Indian restaurants and who, who, who were saving up to buy their own places, they started buying derelict fish and chip shops. But they didn't want to um, get rid of the fish, fish and chip shop menu. You know, mm -hmm. they kept fish and chips on the menu and pies and sausages and so on. And at the at the end, they added rice and curry and not expecting anyone to order any. And they were catered to um, white British working class men. 
who initially just ordered, you know, all the kind of British mm-hmm. uh, dishes. And then they started ordering curries to go with their fish and chips as a curry sauce. Mm-hmm. And that's how, you know, the idea of chips with curry sauce came about. Amazing. So, yeah, so they eventually got, eventually they started embracing Indian food more and more. They liked it. Mm. And uh, so the restaurants started dropping other items from the menu and the, the, their restaurants became fully Indian mm-hmm. or fully Bangladeshi. But the, the Bangladeshi restaurateurs were cooking food which was made for wealthy British customers mm-hmm. in North India. And those British customers were colonials. So basically, it was Mughlai Indian food, which was adapted to British customers' tastes in North India, adapted by Bangladeshi with Bangladeshi restaurateurs using available ingredients. Yeah. And that, those, that, that was the menu of the early Indian restaurants. That's super fascinating. <laughs> so there's like different layers of exchange, isn't there? Yeah. So the, the colonialists go over to India... Uh, they, they, they're served by North Indians. Uh, Bangladeshi people come to, back to the UK or come to the UK, uh, bringing with them these colonial dishes, which then they adapt again to yeah. suit the local population and the local available ingredients, I assume. Yeah, that's Giving right. rise to this whole new thing, I yeah. suppose, that we still nevertheless refer to as Indian cuisine or curry. Yeah, yeah, curry houses or uh, one of the reasons why some, some Indians are trying to cancel the word curry is because they don't... They're, don't want to be associated with what they disdainfully call Bangladeshi curry house food. Right. But, you know, these early restaurateurs, they had to, I mean, they were catering for large numbers mm. and Indian food takes time to cook properly. Mm-hmm. And if you go through all the steps, it can, you know, they could be waiting for ages. I mean, especially, you know, all the layering of spices, yeah. you know, you add spices initially, then you add them in a, you know, after a while, after half an hour or whatever, mm. then, you know, there's more spices to finish the dish and so on. So if they try to do that, customers could be waiting a long time. And right. uh, already, you know, they're quite impatient. Many of them were rude. Uh, lots of them were racist. So in the end, you know, they had to use lots of shortcuts, like instead of sorting onions for 10, 15 minutes or half an hour uh, like you should do they were just using boiled onion paste which right. gave you know the curry kind of raw taste yeah um and they used ready-made curry sauces mm-hmm. initially you know made in-house and then after that they were just commercially available um and they would you know they would use the same sauce for everything but if someone ordered korma they would just add some That's cream, cream. And gum, yeah. uh, almonds to it and if someone wanted a madras curry then they would just add lots more chilies so uh, they were cooking all this generic food which they, they themselves didn't eat. Mm. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's because part of the reason is also, you know, because the, the British palates weren't, um, you know, they weren't sophisticated. Many British people didn't like coriander. They didn't like mm. chilies. They couldn't eat chilies. They didn't like garlic. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was just a um, mildly spiced, you know, kind of barely acceptable food for, <laughs> for you know, for customers, for people who were not used to eating it. Yeah, I can see why some people treat it with disdain. At the same time, you know, it makes sense that it was invented in this way. Yeah, yeah, um, right. And also, I'm a big fan of it, so I don't know. Which actually brings us to the chicken tikka, yeah. which is the product of this process, right? Um, um, well, no. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's believed to be. Uh, I think, yeah, there's a story, you know, which according to the story, there's a, a restaurateur in in Glasgow, who passed away recently, um, Mr. Aslam, and he said in an interview 
he boasted that he invented chicken tikka masala because chicken tikka masala in those days was Britain's number one, you know, most popular curry. Now, apparently, according to a new survey, it's been replaced by chicken korma. But yeah, so, you know, he boasted that he invented the curry because he he gave a dry chicken tikka, which is basically a kebab of marinated chicken, um, to a customer who didn't like it because he the, the customer thought all Indian food should be curry. So he demanded a gravy and he just quickly put together gravy using uh, Campbell's tomato soup, um, mixing it with uh, with spices and cream. Mm. And he created a gravy and so chicken tikka masala was born. But actually, you know, lots of people have questioned it because firstly, I think um, this, this tradition of turning kebabs into, or leftover kebabs into curries has has been going on since at least the, as the Mughal times. Uh, there were lots of uh, kebabs in, in, in the Mughlai era, which you would eat uh, freshly cooked and then next day you would turn them into a curry or you put them in a dal or uh, in, a, in, a, in a pulao or something. So the idea of repurposing um, a kebab, is not, that, that's not new. Mm. Uh, then there was um, a dish which was introduced in 1950s in India by... Uh, Kundan, Kundan Lal Gujral, who was a Pakistani refugee. And he came to India from the Grand Trunk Road and he brought a tandoor oven with him and he introduced a dish called tandoori chicken. Right. And tandoori chicken was cooked in large quantities where, you know, next day, I mean, it was in demand all the time. So he cooked it in large quantities and next day there would be leftovers which he would cook with butter, cream and tomatoes. So that could be a forerunner of t- chicken tikka masala. Um, then there's another dish called um, butter chicken, which was found in Punjabi homes in 1970s, which could have been an adaptation of uh, Mr. Gujral's dish in mm-hmm. 1950s. And then in 1960s, uh, there was a very influential cookbook by Mrs. Balbir Singh called Indian Cookery. And she lived here, she lived in the UK. And she had a dish which was based on Mughlai dish and that was called shy chicken. And that was cooked in a tomato onion gravy as well. So, you know, we, there are all these dishes which existed before chicken tikka masala, which were like chicken tikka masala, basically, you know, chicken often marinated and cooked like a kebab in a gravy of tomatoes and onions. So all these dishes already existed. So I'm, I'm not convinced that he invented chicken tikka masala. I think it makes for a good story. Mm. And it's, uh, it's a really popular story. And I think people like to believe that uh, that story, partly because, you know, it's been mentioned by Robin Cook uh, in his famous on infamous speech mm. as, um, as a kind of um, symbol of multicultural Britain and how, you know, uh, other communities have assimilated in Britain and how Britain has embraced them. But I think, I don't think... Um, I don't think it's true. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. Um, on the curry house, though, the thing that we're calling the curry house, I guess it's not just Indian people who are looking down on this with disdain. Now, it also seems to be lots of British people looking for something else in terms of uh, Indian food. I wonder, do you have you observed the way that Indian foods evolved in the UK uh, more recently? Um, yeah, over the years. I mean, curry is probably... Um, Definitely within the diaspora communities and actually in India as well, I think they're getting less popular and um, I think charts and snacks are becoming mm. more popular. I mean, that's a major trend. I think, you know, the rise in popularity of charts and Indian street food, also, you know, modern Indian, 
where chefs actually boast that they're not serving curry and then right. you find that it's it's a kind of deconstructed curry <laughs> you know so they might take something like say sag paneer yeah. and instead of serving it as sag paneer they might do it in a form of a tart you know sag paneer is sometimes served with kind of maize bread maize flour bread and then you might find a polenta tart like maize flour tart uh, with a filling of sag and paneer, you know, that, that's one example. Mm. So, you know, there are all these kind of invented dishes which take a traditional dish as a, as a starting point. Um, but the good thing is, I mean, chefs are being playful, you know, and sometimes uh, they're bringing back long-forgotten dishes. Mm. They, co- they go to India um, to research the dishes and they travel widely. Um, they're cooking the mother's and grandmother's dishes as well. And um, I think, you know, a lot of modern Indian food can be witty, can be playful. I mean, some diaspora Indians, especially, you know, they're up in the arms about, oh my God, but this is not authentic. But it's not something that would, I mean, again, like the term curry, it's not something that would necessarily bother an Indian person living in India because Indian food has changed a lot in India as well. And let's take an example of like when... um, uh, Trump, uh, D- Donald Trump went to India. There were, you know, one of the menu items was broccoli samosa. And all these diaspora Indians were like up in the arms about, oh, broccoli samosa, that's not authentic. But Indians in India were chill about it because, I mean, mm. it's like, you know, your local samosa maker might be making samosa stuffed with chickpeas or even blue cheese or, you know, or some random, you know, beetroot or something, uh, let alone a high end restaurant in India. So, I mean, you know, so the. I mean, the cuisine is changing and not everyone likes it or approves of it, um, but it's it's changing and there's nothing, you know, you can do about it really. And um, the rise of modern Indian cuisine and also, you know, the rise of like mid-price restaurants mm. with nice decor and nice service. And I think people don't want to go to cheap and cheerful, you know, like four-market-topped four restaurants, uh, which look a bit down market. And actually, even Indian people don't want to go to restaurants. They don't want to hang out with their friends in the kind of restaurants they maybe went to with their parents when they were children, um, when they are growing up, because they want to go to, you know, cooler or hipper places. Mm. Um, so they want to hang out at places like Dishoom. If, even if they grew up eating in South Hall, for instance, you know, because it's just like modern, trendier version of the kind of food that they were, they were, <laughs> they mm. used to, you know, like growing up. So um, I think, yeah, Indian people's tastes are changing, and I think that's that's quite an important factor to consider. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think the whole ch- scene is changing, and I think a lot of diaspora Indians, you know, hang on to uh, their nostalgic, you know, the restaurants they grew up eating in, and that kind of nostalgic style of cooking, but things are changing in India. Mm. Um, I mean, they're changing here, I think, um, as, you know, as you know, from like more and more restaurants like Dishoom cropping up. Dishoom is just an example, but there's so many like younger Indians who are setting up all these, you know, all these restaurants which look very different from, you know, how they used to, from their parents' and grandparents' restaurants. And they have very different menus. Um, And another major change like I said is a you know decline of curries and more charts and snacks uh, there's also rising uh, popularity of Ind- Indian Chinese food or you know what's called Indo-Chinese mm-hmm. that's becoming more and more popular and now those dishes like chili paneer are seen on the restaurant menus of high-end restaurants 
And also curries and spices are changing. Like I think kasundi, which is a Bengali relish, gunpowder spices, which is basically dry chutney from um, Western and Southern India. You know, these these are trendy, fashionable spices. And, you know, the kind of curry powder or garam masala are a bit bit of an old hat, I think. <laughs> and curries, you know, I mean, the most fashionable curry in restaurants right now is salan, which is a Hyderabadi curry, which is cooked with crushed peanuts and sesame seeds and coconut. Um, so, you know, the old school curries like tikka masala and vindaloo, you know, they're like going out of fashion, I think, or slowly mm. go, going out of fashion. You mentioned that, that there's been a kind of turn towards the authentic. I mean, obviously, there's some other reasons why um, Indian cuisine is changing both in India and in the UK, and you, you get those. But one of them is, is this kind of search for something that is considered to be authentic. And yeah, you've written about authenticity elsewhere. I just wonder, like, yeah, is that a big factor in, in some of these changes? And what is kind of meant by when people are looking for something authentic? It's such a problematic term, authenticity. And I don't believe in food authenticity. Um, having said that, um, you know, you know, instinctively that something like a broccoli samosa, for instance, going back to that example, you know, that's not authentic. Mm. But yeah, I mean, what, what is authenticity and whose taste does it reflect? Mm. Um, and, you know, dishes change over time. Um, I mean, Indian food now is it's not the same as like before the arrival of chilies and potatoes and cabbages and carrots and so on, you know, in India. It's changed quite a lot. One, you know, really good example is like authentic, if you like inverted commas, authentic Bombay um, bhaji, which is a street food dish is made from um, mashing up uh, cooked uh, potatoes with cauliflower, green peas, green beans and uh, carrots. And then you, you boil them up and you mash them coarsely and then you cook them in lots of different spices and butter. And you serve them with bread rolls, which are fried in butter. Now, the bread is uh, that was introduced by the Portuguese. Butter was introduced by the British. Right. The cabbage, the cauliflower, the carrots, the peas, the beans, they were introduced by the British. Mm -hmm. The chilies came from um, Mexico and Peru. No, nothing about the dish is authentic. And yet, you know, people talk about authentic Bombay pan bhaji as opposed to, um, say, a modern Indian chef reinterpreting it and adding cheddar cheese on top or something. You mm. know, so I mean, where, you know, where does authenticity begin? And, right. you know, so I think dishes evolve and change and you can't really call anything anything authentic. And yet, you know, there are dishes which, I mean, I prefer the word traditional. Yeah, I was going to say exactly the same thing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I prefer the term traditional, which it's which is also problematic because, yeah. I mean, you know, my traditions might be different from your traditions. Sure. Um, but there are like established traditions and you want, one can say like putting cheddar cheese on top of whatever this isn't isn't traditional you know yeah but then there are you know there are dishes which were which are which have been invented in 20th century or 21st century and like chocolate samosas is you know they're they're, mo they're a modern invention you know it started with one michelin star chef um putting it on his menu back in the i think 1990s mm. and because it's been cooked so many times over the years now it's an established dish so um, a child born today would think it's an authentic dish yeah, <laughs> because sure. it already exists in the world, you know. Yeah. Um, like I think lots of um, like Gujarati snacks and Indian street food snacks have been changed beyond recognition by lots of street food vendors. Mm -hmm. 
And if you say, oh, that's not to my taste or that's not how my grandmother used to make it. But then there are people who enjoy those dishes. You know, there are people who love them. They're really hugely popular. I mean, you know, whose taste are we talking about here? You know, just because, you know, you're richer or you're more upper class or mm. of a higher caste or whatever doesn't mean you can impose your taste on, other, you know, other people. Mm. So that, that's why the discussion becomes problematic that, you know, if you if something is created by someone of a different you know, of a different sort of um, background to you and you go along and you say it's not authentic. Um, okay, that was a super, super interesting conversation. We can leave it there. But Sejal, what are you working on at the moment and where can people find your work if they want to find out more about you? Okay, I'm working on an Indian food dictionary, which is a project I started on a whim. And if I thought about it, I wouldn't have started it because the cuisine is really complex. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I've been working on it since February, you know, from five years ago. Wow. And I've written thousands of entries and I write one entry per day, every single day without fail. Um, and that's quite time consuming because it takes a while to research. Um, that's going really well, but it'll take a few more years to complete. Mm. Um, also write about food for a number of different newspapers, magazines and websites. Great. I'll put some links to some of your work in the show notes and thank also you. a link to your Twitter. But um, for now, that was amazing. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you.